get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus level. He knew that this form of hardcore rap was what his friends needed, what the fans needed. And he went out there and he did a darn good job giving it to them. Chris will be the first one to tell you, when it comes to my money, my mother, and my my children, Mm -hmm. that's number one. Wow. That's where respect comes. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. This episode is about one of my all-time favorite MCs, Christopher the Notorious B.I.G. Wallace. It's just basically a life story, you know what I'm saying? I just laid everything that I experienced or witnessed, you know what I'm saying? And my days on the streets and just laid it on some on some whack. Big came on the scene like a lightning bolt and sadly died way before his time. It's been 21 years since his tragic unsolved murder, following the murder six months prior of rapper Tupac Shakur. In this episode of the Backstory Podcast, you'll hear about the life of Christopher Wallace and his pathway to success in the cutthroat rap industry during the genre's most competitive period. I'll also be sharing my first three interviews with the Notorious Big. The first was a few months before the release of his debut classic, Ready to Die. The second was exactly a month after the release of Ready to Die. And the third is sort of like a random conversation I had one night with Big, who happened to be in Philadelphia where I was on the radio at that time. Also, you'll hear from two people very close to the Notorious B.I.G., his mother, Valletta Wallace. I mean, you all know Notorious B.I.G., Biggie Small, Big Papa. I knew Christopher, the warm, loving, generous son who calls me mommy. You will also hear from a very pivotal person in Big's career, the man who discovered him, the legendary DJ, Mr. C. And I'll never forget the first time me and Biggie, um, met Puff at Uptown Records and as soon as we got in the office Diddy had asked Biggie round the spot I want you to kick a rhyme right now and Biggie kicked the rhyme and I can't even remember what the rhyme was but after Biggie stopped uh, you know finished rhyming Puff was like yo I can have a record out on you by the summer would you be cool with that? You will also learn why he had to change his name from Biggie Smalls to the Notorious B.I.G. So let's get started. And since this is about Big, he loved hip hop. So I'm going to take you on a ride with a little hip hop history. You see, the intro of Biggie's debut album, Ready to Die, was sort of a hip hop microcosm of his life up to that point. Christopher Wallace was born on May 21st, 1972, a child born into hip hop. Now, the intro of Ready to Die starts with his birth in 1972. Curtis Mayfield's Superfly is playing in the background. At that time in 1972, Superfly was a big song. And Curtis Mayfield was a very inspirational musical force to hip-hop artists. It then segs to 1979, and you hear Rapper's Delight from the Sugar Hill Gang in the background. You hear a man, an actor, portraying Biggie's father, cursing out Valletta Wallace, who was voiced by Little Kim, in the reenactment on the album. They were fighting over a young Christopher and his behavior and what to do with him. It then segs into 1987. Audio 2's classic top villain is playing in the background. As teenage Biggie is plotting, then actually robbing a train full of people at gunpoint. Then it segs to 1993. The shiznit from Snoop Dogg is playing in the background. As Christopher Wallace is being released from jail. And the prison guard reminds him that he will be back. And Biggie proclaims he, the prison guard 
will never see his ass in here again, famously saying, I got big plans, with a sinister laugh at the end of it. He was actually chronicling his life up until that point through hip-hop. In his first official single, Juicy, from the Ready to Die album, he continued this theme. Peep out the first verse on Juicy. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine, Salt and Pepper and Heavy D inside the limousine, hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack Mr. Magic Molly Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. So let me diagram the first verse of Juicy. We didn't have any internet in the late 80s and early 90s. Word Up magazine was what blogs are today. You learned about hip-hop and gossip through the pages of Word Up and Write On magazine. And you had to wait for that one copy every month. Later, it turned into The Source and XXL and some of the other magazines that focused on hip-hop. But what Biggie was talking about was that 80s, late 80s vibe. And then Salt and Pepper and Heavy D were superstars at that time. Rap Attack was one of the first major hip-hop radio shows in New York City on WBLS. The legendary Mr. Magic was a local uh, hip-hop icon on the radio. And every B-boy and B-girl would be locked into his show every weekend, recording it on their cassette tapes. When he says, I let my tape rock till my tape popped. It was your education on hip-hop. Whatever was hot in hip-hop, Mr. Magic and his incredible DJ, Molly Maul, who ended up becoming a major producer, would make sure you heard all about it and you had tapes of all the good moments in your archive. This is what fed a young Christopher Wallace. In the beginning of the movie about his life notorious, you see a young Christopher in school reading Word Up magazine with his friend. I had a front row seat to hip-hop from the start, and the notorious B.I.G. was another first-generation hip-hop kid, patiently studying the game as a fan growing up in the city of its birth, watching the first generation of MCs doing it for the culture, rapping in the park, battling other MCs. This was intense competition with no internet, no social media, no gifts, just a bunch of brothers with a mic in their hand. So how did all this start? The roots of hip hop are Afro-Caribbean. So let me explain. And I'm going to tie all this back, I promise. But I feel like some things people think that they know about, but they really don't know the story. And that's what the Backstory Podcast is all about. So let me tell you, the godfather of hip hop was a guy named Clive Campbell. He was born and raised in Kingston, Jamaica, and witnessed the massive sound systems at parties in his neighborhoods, which were called dance halls. Then his family emigrated to New York City, specifically the borough of the Bronx in the late 60s when he was 12 years old. This was a turbulent time in American history, and the Bronx was in decline due to white flight and economic disparity. In previous podcasts, I talked about the Bronx and what was going on and how hip-hop was formed out of this energy. Clive was a tall kid and in high school given the nickname Hercules. He hung out with a graffiti crew named the Ex-Vandals, and the legend of DJ Cool Herc was born. He loved music and would have back-to-school parties in the rec room of his apartment building. He set up his first sound system, and his after-school events would become very popular for teens in the neighborhood since there wasn't anyone catering to them. Herc noticed the turntable set up in discos, which at the time was the music everybody was listening to, and what the clubs catered to. He saw how the DJs had multiple turntables, so the music would be continuously played at the club. He came up with the idea of taking two turntables and putting two copies of the same record on those turntables and finding a section of the record, or a groove as they call it. Then going back and forth on both turntables, creating a live loop of this section of the song, which at the time, hip-hop dancers or breakers would love the back and forth of the beats. 
This became what is known as breakbeats. It was immediate art, a unique sound that intrigued people because the DJ would get into a rhythm. It was common for people to sit around and listen to a DJ just cutting up breakbeats. That is why initially the DJ was the star and the MC, meaning master of ceremony, hosted while the DJ cut it up. Then the MC took it to the next level by rhyming over the DJ's breakbeats. From this burgeoning movement, MCs were labeled rappers. This was the dawning of hip-hop culture. But initially, it wasn't called hip-hop. It was labeled disco rap music because many of the beats used were from disco records. The world was introduced to this Bronx movement in 1979 with the release of Rapper's Delight from the Sugar Hill Gang. Another Bronx DJ, the recently departed legendary Lovebug Starsky, who put out a few records himself, coined this new disco rap music hip-hop based off the first line of Rapper's Delight. And the Bronx was the center of this cultural revolution happening at warp speed. Herc started the movement, but there was another crew forming, the Zulu Nation led by African Bombada, whose birth name was Lance Taylor, who at one point in the early 70s was a gang member in the Bronx. So let me tell you a little bit about gangs. And again, I'm going to tie all this back to Biggie, but I wanted to kind of give you a sense of hip hop, where it came from and what Biggie was absorbing growing up in Brooklyn. If you ever saw the movie The Warriors, which, by the way, is a classic Walter Hill-directed film about gangs, Walter Hill produced the successful Alien franchise movies, and he directed Eddie Murphy in his first film, The Classic 48 Hours. The Warriors is a must-view movie if you've never seen it. It really paints the picture of the 70s in New York City. At that time, the city was crime-ridden, broke, and very violent, which is what hip-hop was created out of. The plot of the Warriors movie was very simple. All the gangs from all the boroughs in New York City came together in a park in the Bronx at the request of a gang member or a gang leader named Cyrus. He led the fictional Gramercy Riffs gang, the most powerful gang in the city. He created and made a truce with all the gangs that were fighting in the city and asked them all to bring nine unarmed delegates to a meeting in a park in the Bronx. He had a radical yet diabolical idea to consolidate all the gangs into one gang and take over the city. In his speech that he makes at the beginning of the movie, he says there are 60,000 of us and only 20,000 cops in the city. He said they could handle the mob, the politicians, and Cyrus famously says, you know why? Because we got the streets, suckers. And all the gang members go crazy. The Warriors were from Coney Island in Brooklyn, And they made the long trip on the subway to the Bronx. The Bronx and Coney Island is like 25 miles apart, different ends of the city. But 25 miles in New York City is a long way. Cyrus is making a speech about unity and consolidated power. After mentioning each part of his plan, he would famously say, can you dig it? The gangs cheer him on. And it was during one of those cheering moments in the commotion, a member from the gang, the Rogues, shoots and kills Cyrus. A warrior witnesses the shooting, and at the same time, the police, who had secretly surrounded all the gang members in this park, turns on blinding lights, and pandemonium ensues. So what does this movie have to do with Biggie? Or hip-hop? I'm painting that picture again of what a kid would be seeing growing up in New York City during that time. However, there is a Biggie connection to this movie that I will get to later, so hold that thought. Now, let's get back to Lance Taylor, soon-to-be Africa Bambata. 
The early 70s was the peak of street gangs in every neighborhood in New York City. Lance, who came from a family of community activists, was a member of the Black Spades, which was a gang that grew out of several public housing projects in the Bronx. He rose to the top of the leadership in the gang, but his activist roots kicked in and he won an essay contest, which the prize was a trip to Africa. This trip exposed him to a different way of life. And he was inspired to do something more constructive in his community. He also was a fan of the movie Zulu and combined with his trip to Africa, noticed the recurring theme of unity. Upon his return to America, he dedicated his time and resources to changing the circumstances of many of the youth who roamed the streets with anger and frustration, which fueled the city's gang problem. He changed his name to Africa Bambada. Bambada was a Zulu chief in South Africa who led a rebellion against the unfair economic conditions in the 1920s. A true man of the people. Gang violence started to wane in New York City in the mid-70s. Kids didn't have good schools, community resources like rec centers, etc., or any economic opportunities, and gangs filled that void. However, hip-hop culture was starting to come together out of the Bronx, and there was now something more positive to do other than being a gang. It was during this time that Africa Bambada formed the Universal Zulu Nation, which consisted of hip hoppers, the MCs, graffiti writers, uh, graffiti artists, dancers, and B-boys, many all former gang members. Africa Bambada, in conjunction with DJ Cool Herc, instead of gang wars, they were replaced by block parties. The DJ would plug his system into the light post, and it was all about the DJ, the MC would host and rhyme, And there would be rap battles while the breakers danced. In the recent Netflix series, The Get Down, you kind of see a little bit of what I'm talking about. And again, that's a must-watch show. It's a shame that it only lasted um, uh, two seasons, but this really kind of paints that picture as well. This was the early days of hip-hop. Another good movie to see is Wild Style. It encapsulated the early days of B-Boys as well in New York City. So I wanted to kind of give you some of that hip-hop history. A majority of the early hip-hop artists were mainly from the Bronx, like Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash, and the Furious Five, Treacherous Three, and the Cold Crush Brothers. But then there was Curtis Blow, who wasn't from the Bronx. He was from Harlem, and he was the first rapper signed to a major label, Mercury Records. And his first single was the classic Christmas rapping, which went gold, and his follow-up, The Break, sold $1.5 million. By the way, a teenage run from Run DMC was his DJ. In the Notorious movie, you see a young Christopher rapping the lyrics of the breaks. These early rappers were cult heroes to a young generation growing up in the economically depressed 70s New York City, continuing into the oppressive Reaganomics era of the 80s. A constant theme here for black and brown kids were a lack of economic opportunities, lack of fathers in the household, lack of social programs and basic things for kids to do. Hip hop was a way to keep busy for many and it transformed lives. I think of my own life and career to this point. It was all because of hip hop music. I wanted to do this for a living. It gave me a sense of purpose. It kept me on a positive track. And many artists will tell you the same thing. Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force released their first single, Planet Rock. I mentioned this in an earlier podcast about changing music styles. And during this time, it was kind of like an electric European vibe that hip hop was connected with. And I mentioned a German group called Kraftwerk who had a song out called Trans Europe Express and another song called Numbers. 
These infectious tracks had no rhyming on them, but they were cinematic in their presence. And Bambada took a little of that vibe. Remember, I said early rap records were usually taken from R&B or disco records. So Planet Rock took a little bit of the craft work and added some of their best MCs from the Bronx. And it was a worldwide smash. Those first artists paved the way for the explosive next generation of artists in the early to mid 80s, like Houdini, Run DMC, LL, the Disco 3, who you know is the Fat Boys, Public Enemy, Heavy D, Dougie Fresh, Kumo D. It wasn't just the Bronx creating all this new interesting art. MCs from Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan started to shine. And at one point in the 80s, Two of the best MCs weren't from the Bronx. Rakim was from a small working class town in Long Island named Wine Dance. And a rapper's rapper who inspired a generation of MCs, Big Daddy Kane, was from Brooklyn. And he would have a major influence and connection to a young Christopher Wallace and a young Sean Carter. As they both were growing up in Bed-Stuy, soaking up all this culture around them. I also mentioned in previous podcasts my background as a child of... Divorced parents spending a lot of time living between Philly and New York and watching the birth of hip hop myself and how quickly it expanded from one borough to all boroughs to North Jersey to Philly to Hartford to Boston to the rest of the country, then to the world. But if you lived in New York, you had a special connection to hip hop. It was a part of your DNA. Hip hop may have started out as a black and brown art form, but in the diverse melting pot of the greater New York City area, it was the energy the city fed off of. When all the dance clubs, because dance music was also exploding at this time, started to dabble with hip hop, it opened up the genre, not just the B-boys from the Bronx or Harlem or Brooklyn, but wealthy white kids from the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side, from Long Island. Folks of all races gravitated to this movement. Christopher Wallace, student of hip hop, absorbed this energy early, then watched the hip hop paradigm quickly switch to the West Coast, then start to develop roots in the South. At one point in the early 90s, New York was no longer the center of the hip hop universe anymore. But that quickly changed as the decade went on and the economy was different for people of color as the Clinton era began. The whole losing the center of hip-hop universe didn't last that long as the East Coast came back with a vengeance. I've mentioned on previous podcasts, I call this the hip-hop renaissance. I'm talking about Wu-Tang, Nas, A Tribe Called Quest, Leaders of the New School, which birthed Busta Rhymes. And LL was still a dominating force with his Molly Mall produced comeback album, Mama Said Knock You Out. A young Brooklyn MC would not only help swing the pendulum back East, Biggie Smalls, the notorious B.I.G., would snatch the throne and within a few years become one of the most powerful rappers in the world and become the king of New York. Christopher Wallace grew up in the Clinton Hill section of Brooklyn, which bordered Bed-Stuy. He was the only child of Aletta Wallace, whom was a teacher, and Selwyn George Latour, who was a welder. His father left when he was two years old, forcing Valletta to work two jobs to support her son. In the movie Notorious, they allude to his father being married and lying to his mother. Biggie struggled without his father growing up. He was a good student, especially in English, in which he won a few awards. Here's his mother, Valletta Wallace, in an interview I did with her a few years after his death. Well, I, I knew he was a great writer because when he wrote essays or stuff for school, I always tell him, if you're going to write a story, think of yourself as the story. Mm -hmm. Think of you being in the story. If you're going to write about a mic, think of you as a mic. And this way you can relate it better. 
and he, when I read some of his essays, he always get his B's and his A's and A minuses and A plus, A pluses and his excellence. So mm. I knew he was a very good writer. As far as the rap, I taught him a lot. We read a lot when he was a mm-hmm. little boy. Uh, we shared a lot of things together, a lot of stories together. We go to the library together. So um, I wasn't shocked that, you know, he, he was he was such a great writer. I was not shocked. Christopher was 6'3". He was a large child and was given the nickname Big early on. He started writing rhymes as a kid. He was growing up in a hustler culture. Another thing you'll notice from the movie Notorious, they show him writing rhymes about his father not being around, and he sees all the kids walking through the neighborhood with expensive chains, with the sneakers, with the clothes, all the so-called benefits of the drug culture. Then they show the drug dealers with the expensive foreign cars. This is something many kids all over the country see growing up, and the risk-reward of selling drugs sadly becomes an option a lot of kids take. It was around 12 when Christopher started dealing drugs in his neighborhood. His mom, Valletta, talking about those tough years. As a parent, I yelled a lot, but I, my yelling was because I cared for him, because I loved him, because I wanted something good for his future, because I did not like the station in, in which he was traveling. Mm-hmm. And mothers do that. Fathers do that. It was not an easy road, but thank God he turned back. I punched a lot. I hit a lot, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hit a lot. And basically, that was that's what it is. But it was a lot of love. He never lost respect for me. Mm-hmm. He never, never lost respect for me. Like so many kids growing up, especially in single-parent households, there's a lot of time away from parents. And they have no idea what their kids are doing. By age 17, Christopher was a full-fledged drug dealer, bagging his own drugs and selling them. He also learned that his teenage girlfriend was pregnant. A lot on the plate of a young man and a very dangerous profession. His mother had no clue to what extent he was doing until later years. Going back to the movie Notorious, which I suggest you watch after listening to this podcast, you can see that his mother was very strict and kept a tight leash, or so she thought. Young Christopher was leading a double life, one way around his mom, but once out of her sight, he was another person. There is a scene in Notorious that shows him cutting cocaine and his mom walks in the room. He hides the drugs, which are on a plate under the bed, and he acts like he's praying. Then, on the way out of the house, as he was going to school, he was dressed a certain way in front of his mom, but then he goes to the roof, where he has a stash of clothes, chains, and a firearm. The moment his mother realizes he's a drug dealer is their conversation a little bit later on when she thinks that plate under his bed was old mashed potatoes and throws it away, and he panics because that was his work. Here, his mother talks about learning about his criminal activity. What he did, he did out on the street, he hid it. Many of the things that he did, he also hid it. I found out a lot of things about my son after he passed away and when he became a rapper. Mm-hmm. Through his rhymes? Through his rhymes, and not only through his rhymes, but some of the stories. I asked him about the stories. And he would say, Mom, I just want to sell some records now. Just relax, just cool, just remember, don't read. Because what I'm doing right now is not for anyone over 35 years of age. (laughs) Christopher's place of business was Fulton Street in Brooklyn. It was those long days on the corner selling drugs where his best friend D-Rock encouraged him to drop rhymes. He was building a neighborhood reputation as a good MC. His rhymes would be so good he would draw crowds. And one day, another local rapper who heard about him challenged Christopher to a battle. And what is funny about it is this local rapper, when he first took a look at Big, he thought, how could this fat kid rhyme? 
But boy, was he wrong. Here is a 17-year-old notorious B.I.G. in this infamous battle on Fulton Street in the Bronx. So go to YouTube and peep out this battle and check out the old school mic they were using. It looked like a gun. It was clear early on that Big had presence and was a masterful lyricist. In 1989, he was arrested on weapons charges and put on probation. He then violated that probation. And then a year later, on a drug run in North Carolina, he was arrested and spent nine months in jail. It was that time in jail where he focused on writing rhymes. This was the beginnings of the creation of Rhymes for Ready to Die. He would name himself Biggie Smalls after the character played by Calvin Lockhart in the 1975 film Let's Do It Again. Here's some more homework, especially for any film buffs and young people that may not know this. Bill Cosby and Sidney Poitier did a series of movies in the 70s which showcased their amazing chemistry. It was black cinema gold. Between 1974 and 1977, Cosby and Poitier teamed up for three classic films, Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again, and Piece of the Action. Now, as we celebrate Black Panther's release and all the success that that movie has had recently in 2018, there's really always been a void of black films, and for many black actors, not a lot of opportunities. These films with Cosby and Poitier showcase all of the best black actors of those times, and they were very successful films. So you should check them out when you get a chance. But in the movie Let's Do It Again, Christopher Wallace connected with the character Biggie Smalls, and that was his rap name. Upon his release from jail, Christopher put together his first demo tape. He was a new father and wanted to focus on music. Enter DJ Mr. C, who was a Bed-Stuy Brooklyn celeb. I mentioned earlier that Big Daddy Kane was Brooklyn's most respected and famous MC, and Mr. C was his DJ, and they toured all over the world. Another local DJ, 50 Grand, who was Big's first DJ, arranged to get this demo to Mr. C. Here is DJ Mr. C talking about the first time he heard Big. Um, the first time that I heard B.I.G., um, I actually met Biggie through his first DJ, 50 Grand. 50 Grand was a uh, DJ that I grew up with um, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And um, at the time, I was DJing for Big Daddy Kane, going on tour with Kane. And um, 50 Grand told me that he had this kid from Fulton Street, which was right up the street from where me and 50 Grand lived in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, that he had this kid named Biggie 
the notorious Biggie Smalls, that was his name at the time, and um, that he had this kid's music uh, that he wanted me to hear. Um, at the time, I was getting ready to go on tour with Big Daddy Kane, so I told 50 Grand, listen, I come back from tour September 23rd. I'm just making up a date of when I told 50 Grand when I was coming back, but whatever date I told 50 Grand I was coming back, that night, 50 Grand was in front of my house with the Biggie cassette, and I will never forget the first uh, demo I heard of Biggie. It was actually, um, what was so ironic, it was a basement demo from 50 Grand's house, and the first rap that I heard from Biggie was him rhyming over the original sample that me and Big Daddy Kane used for Ain't No Half-Stepping, one of our biggest hit records. It, um, the song was called Blind Alley by The Emotions, and Biggie rapped to that uh, that track. I can remember the rhyme like it was yesterday. Microphone, murderer, mass made, hem maker. B.I.G. is on the mic called The Undertaker. Make an appointment. Schedule an interview. Because you know what Big Man's about to do? So when I heard that and then the rest of the rhyme to it, I was like, yo, we got to do something with this kid. Now, they recreated the demo in the Notorious movie. But you know how we do here on the Backstory Podcast. Here is the original Raw demo. Yo, we got DJ 50 Grand, Big D, RC, Amp Money. And the undisputed B.I.G., that's me. A whole lot of niggas want Big to make a demo tape, especially that dumbass nigga R. This going out to you, nigga. Recognize. Yo, 50, what's this? It's a demo. It's a demo. Oh, murder up, mass made, have makeup. B.I.G.'s on the mic, call the undertaker. Make an appointment, schedule an interview. Because you know what big man's about to do? 50 grand on the technique. At the right peak, brothers want to hear the words big man speak. The microphone, I'm ripping. The burn, I got the clipping. As you can hear, Christopher Wallace, newly minted as Biggie Smalls, had raw talent. Enter Sean Puffy Combs, another first-generation hip-hop kid from Harlem, raised in the New York suburb of Mount Vernon, which was right outside of the Bronx. Sean's dad was murdered when he was two, and his mother moved the family out of Harlem. He graduated from one of the best private schools in the city. He then went on to Howard University in D.C., securing an internship at Uptown Records, which was started by industry veteran 
veteran Andre Harrell. Andre was the former rapper Dr. Jekyll from the short-lived group Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They had a hit record back in the day called AMPM. And Andre, after his career as an artist, stalled, went to college, and along the way met Russell Simmons and started on his path to a more behind-the-scenes role working at Def Jam. He rose to vice president and general manager within two years. It was at that time when Def Jam exploded as the premier hip-hop label with the best roster in the business. And Andre left to start his own label, Uptown Records. I also mentioned in the LL podcast, if you watch Crush Groove, you'll see Andre Harrell in the room in LL's first scene. He was actually part of the people that were judging new artists for Def Jam. In 1988, MCA Records was looking to get a seat at the table in the very popular urban space. Hoping a little Def Jam luck would rub off on them, they offered Andre Harrell a label deal. Another uptown success story was R&B singer Al B. Shore and the R&B group Guy. On the strength of those three artists, Uptown Records was a major player in urban music, and it happened quickly. Andre had two artists on the bench that were both doing background work for other artists on the label. And Andre discovered Puff and gave him his internship while Puff was at Howard. So Puff, who y'all know as Diddy now, would be on the Amtrak train going back and forth from New York to his internship. But on the side, Puff was a promoter doing all kinds of parties at Howard and along the East Coast. And I got to give kudos to Andre Harrell because he did what many people in power would never do. Bring a young cat in the circle and feed off that energy. It was clear that Puff had an ear to the streets. And a lot of people in power don't necessarily like that kind of energy. And that's what made Andre Harrell different. It was obvious that Puff was special. He had been in music circles for years. If you go to YouTube, search Dougie Fresh Summertime video, and you'll see a young Sean Combs dancing in the video. Puff was destined for success in the music business because he had so much confidence and swagger. To some, it was a turnoff, but to Puff, he had blinders on, and he was a bull in the china shop. You will never deny his presence in anything. And Puff saw something special in those two artists on the bench. One was Jodeci, and they were a group of two sets of brothers from Charlotte, North Carolina. They had a 29-song demo and saw what was happening at Uptown Records. So they drove to New York unannounced to get a meeting with Andre so he could listen to their demo. They stepped out on faith and made their way to the label and got that meeting. And Andre asked them to perform on the spot. They performed Come and Talk to Me and I'm Still Waiting. Heavy D, who was a superstar at the time, overheard them and told Andre that he needed to sign them immediately. And, of course, he did, and assigned his star intern, Sean Combs, to work with them. That ended up being one of the best moves of his career and the launching pad for Puff. At the time, Boys to Men, who I knew personally from my days in Philadelphia, were the biggest male R&B group in the world. They were clean-cut, neat, huge crossover success. They were the kind of boys you bring home to mother. Puff, who again kept his ear to the street, wanted the opposite of that. Tim's baggy jeans, sex appeal, and unleashed Jodeci as the bad boys of R&B. And boy, did those guys like the party. And it was Puff's idea to remix a few of their songs, and that changed their trajectory immediately. That other artist on the bench was a background singer named Mary J. Blige, and he unleashed the same magic on her. At 21 years old, Sean Puffy Combs was on top of the world as the man responsible for Jodeci and Mary J. Blige, who were both unprecedented successes on a national stage. So this Biggie demo tape, and you heard the rawness of it a few minutes ago, was floating around every label in New York City. 
And he was being featured in a very popular unsigned hype column in the Source magazine. The Source magazine was hip hop's Bible at that time. You wanted a five-star review, and some of the biggest, most classic albums in history got five stars in the Source magazine. But the unsigned hype column was sort of like, here's an artist you need to look out for. Here's somebody that's not signed to a label. So let me tell you some of the alumni of the unsigned hype column. DMX, Common, Eminem, Mob Deep. Shout out to Maddie C. from The Source, who had an awesome ear and was responsible for picking these artists to be in the column. Here is DJ Mr. C. discussing how Biggie got his deal. So I was actually attempting to try to do a Mr. C. album, and I had a, I had a five-song demo on my album, and one of the songs was called Biggie Got the Hype Shit. And um, when I would submit the five-song demos to these record labels, they didn't care about Mr. C album. All they cared about was who is this guy named Biggie Smalls that made this song called Biggie that got the hype shit that I was shopping at my five song demo. So the Mr. C album kind of turned into people wanting to sign Biggie because of the song that I did for my album. Um, so like I said earlier, I had got offers from Def Jam and Jive um, or, or whatever. But while those offers was coming in, a guy named Puff Daddy, who was A&R at a... Uh, Uptown Records with Andre Harrell was looking for the next, you know, big rapper. And he went to Maddie C with the Source magazine and asked Maddie, you know, who's like the best rappers you got for the unsigned hype? And Maddie was like, yeah, I got this guy called the Notorious uh, Biggie Smalls and the Hitman 50 Grand. And the first thing that Puffy uh, asked Maddie was, how he look? <laughs> and Maddie was like, yo, he ain't the best looking rapper, but he, he's nice on the mic. And so Puff asked Maddie, how can I find him? And then um, Maddie was like, yo, you got to contact Mr. C. You know, back then, that's when we had those 1-800 Sky pages. And I got a Sky page text from, not, well, it wasn't even called the text then, but I got a Sky page uh, number for me to call back. And it was Diddy that I had to call back. And he wanted to set up a meeting with um, me and Biggie and kind of start talking about if he's interested in signing Biggie. And I'll never forget the first time me and Biggie um, <clears throat> met Puff at Uptown Records and as soon as we got in the office, Diddy had asked Biggie round the spot, I want you to kick a rhyme right now. And Biggie kicked the rhyme. And I can't even remember what the rhyme was, but after Biggie stopped, uh, you know, finished rhyming, uh, Puff was like, yo, I can have a record out on you by the summer. Would you be cool with that? <laughs> and Big was like, yo, talk to C, man. Whatever C say, talk to him. Or, you know, talk to him. And then one thing led to another, and and we Biggie was originally signed to Uptown Records. Um, he, he there was no bad way at the time he was signed to Uptown. But then when Puffy left Uptown, um, coincidentally at the same time, Biggie got dropped from Uptown after Puff left Uptown because Biggie had did a song called "Dreams of Fucking an R and B Bitch." If you remember that record, and when Biggie did that record, you know if you remember that record, he was talking about having sex with different. Um, artists at the time like Patti LaBelle and Raven Simone and, you know, Escape, you know, a different R female R&B singers that was out at the time. And some of them R&B singers was actually signed to MCA. So the chairman, the owner of MCA, can't remember his name, but he wanted Biggie to get dropped off the label because he was disrespecting some of the female R&B singers that was on MCA. And that's how Biggie got dropped from MCA. But then, of course, coincidentally, the same time he got dropped was around the same time that Puff left MCA. So Puff just basically 
once Biggie got dropped from MCA, Puffy um, signed Biggie to Bad Boy Arista, and then um, you know the Ready to Die album was recorded, and um, that's how it was, and that's how, what my role was with Biggie. Okay, so the first time I heard about Big was in late 1992. Heavy D released his Blue Funk album that December. It was considered a more harder Heavy D after he was coming off some huge pop successes with melodic, friendly songs. One particular song he had on the album was called A Bunch of Niggas, and it featured the late guru from Gangstar and a young, notorious B.I.G., and he shined on this feature. In early February 1993, I went out to San Francisco for the Gavin Convention. This is a major music industry convention for radio and records for all formats. I got to shout out my fam, Tembisa Mshaka, who was the rap editor at Gavin. Y'all need to follow her on Instagram. She's doing big things and follow her on social media. She was responsible for bringing us all together, the labels, the rappers, and the radio folks every year. And Uptown Records was hot, so you paid attention to what they were doing, especially the golden child, Sean Puff Daddy Combs. It was during that convention my man Dan Smalls, who worked at Uptown, gave me the Biggie Smalls mixtape. On his mixtape was two songs that stood out, The What featuring Method Man and Dreams, his ode to R&B singers that offended many, as you heard DJ Mr. C, which led to his release from Uptown Records. I cleaned both songs up and started to play them on my show, and the buzz started to build on the East Coast about this new MC. Puff, as always, was strategic with Big, putting him on a Supercat remix for Dolly My Baby. Supercat was a very popular artist at that time, and his remix was the look that Biggie needed. I'm saying, I, I hit everybody off with everything. Everybody like party joints. I got some party joints. Right. I got some joints for the honeys, for the thugs. It's just some universal stuff. You know? Okay. Mary J. Blige did a remix for Supercat as well. And then going back a year, in the summer of 1992, Mary J. Blige released her classic debut album, What's the 411? In 1993, she did a remix album of What's the 411, and Biggie was featured on Real Love Remix and What's the 411 Remixes. Biggie's verse on the 411 Remix is a recreation of his controversial Dream song, but a less racy version. So I suggest if you've never heard the Dream song, which you probably should have heard, you should listen to that and then listen to that remix of What's the 411 and you'll see the adjustment. I met Big for the first time at the Jack the Rapper convention in Atlanta in 1993. This was the annual gathering of black music executives, radio executives and talent, label artists. Everybody would come to this event. If you were looking for a deal or a job in radio, this is where you would come. All kind of opportunities would happen at the Jack the Rapper convention created by the late legendary radio and record man Jack Gibson. And in the late 80s, as urban music began to expand into hip hop, the convention changed dramatically. I had gone to this convention two years previous to 1993 and was mostly an R&B thing. In fact, they would just kind of keep hip hop at night and just like have very few hip hop um, events. But 1993 was different. I mean, Death Row Records was the dominating force in hip-hop music from the West Coast behind Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And there was a panel this particular year that best showed the direction of urban music. It was the Young Guns versus the Old Heads or something like that. That was the title. I can't remember what it was. But I do remember Suge Knight and Puff were on this panel. And actually, people don't really notice that Suge and Puff were actually cool at first. And, and again, I may be wrong on this, but the way the story goes is that Suge encouraged Puff to go out on his own because he was a driving force behind Uptown's biggest successes, Mary J. Blige and Jodeci. And I do remember there was some issue with Suge Knight 
because Jodeci and Mary J. Blige had really bad deals at Uptown, and he wanted to manage them, and he wanted them on death row. And so I think a little of that was sort of like to screw with Uptown. But again, I'm, I'm just guessing, but I'm trying to remember what was happening at that time. So back to this panel, there were several established black music executives. I remember uh, Hank Caldwell, who was a a major executive at that time. He was on the panel, as well as another respected black music executive, Hiram Hicks, who I knew personally from his Philly roots. In fact, when I started in radio, Hiram Hicks was the station photographer. That's how he got into the business. And he ended up having so much success in artist management and ended up running his own label. So this panel was an interesting mix of people that had success and then young success. So you can imagine the panel was a little uncomfortable to watch because Suge was so disrespectful. He really he really didn't have any respect for the older executives, kind of had a little disdain for him, and he just bowled over everybody on this panel like a bully he was. Puff was soft-spoken but very confident. Also at this convention in 1993, there was underlying beef between Death Row and Uncle Luke. You may recall in the song Dre Day, They took shots at Luke, and then Luke came back with a song. It was really no competition musically. Death Row handled that. However, the tension was building between them, and it came to a head at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Atlanta when Luke pulled up with 50 dudes from Miami, and all hell broke loose in the lobby with Death Row. I recall standing to the side, watching it all unfold with a young Biggie and a few of his friends watching as well. And this was the first time I met him. And that was my last Jack the Rapper convention, which moved to Orlando the next year, but it had lost its luster. So anyway, back to Big. That spring, he dropped his first official single, Party and Bullshit, off the Who's the Man soundtrack. This was an ode to a young black kid's party experience in the 90s and wanting to keep his gun on him just in case. You would go to parties and dudes would fight. It would be at college. You would be in a hood. There was always brothers fighting over nothing. And at times, gunfire would ring out. Not much different today. The Who's the Man movie was a big deal in 1993, starring Ed Lover and Dr. Dre from Yo! MTV Raps. They were also radio personalities in New York on Hot 97. This movie featured a who's who of current hip-hop stars. And for an artist like the Notorious B.I.G., to be on the soundtrack was a great introduction to the country. Party and bullshit connected with people, and Big started to do shows. His lyrics and delivery stood out. It was a great introduction for him. Two parts of the song that stood out. Now I want you all to listen carefully to the lyrics. I was a terror since the public school era. Bathroom passes, cutting classes, squeezing asses. Smoking blunts was a daily routine since 13, a chubby nigga on the scene. I used to have the trade deuce and the deuce deuce in my bubble goose. Now I got a Mac in my knapsack, lounging black, smoking sacks up in axe and sidekicks with my sidekicks rocking fly kicks. So to translate that, he used to have a 32 pistol. Then he had a 22 pistol. Then he had a Mac 10 in his knapsack. What? Here's some other lyrics from that song that just stood out. Hugs from the honeys, pounds from the roughnecks. Seen my man see that I knew from the projects. He's talking about Mr. C. Said he had beef. Asked me if I had my piece. Sure do. Two 22s in my shoes. Holla if you need me, love. I'm in the house. Roam and stroll and see what the honeys is about. Moet popping, ho hopping. Ain't no stopping, big papa. I'm a bad boy. 
This guy was so lyrical and he didn't write anything down. Jay-Z was the same way, just coming up with stuff off of the top of their head. So I like to know what was in the water in Bed-Stuy because not many rappers could make stuff up like that and turn them into major songs. Biggie was brilliant with his stage presence. And Party and Bullshit, there's a break in the middle of the song. So it kind of stops, right? Because it's sort of like this confrontation. And Big was brilliant with his stage presence. So... As he performs the song, there are like 20 dudes dancing on stage with him. And then in the middle of the song, he says, then a fight breaks out. And all of a sudden, the dudes on stage start fighting each other. The crowd doesn't know that this is stage and it looks bad like a brawl. And as they're going back and forth, hitting each other, pushing each other, people in the stands are like, oh, my God, what's going on? He steps in front of everyone and says, yo, chill, yo, chill. They stop fighting. And then he just continues the song and sets it off with the Rodney King line. Can't we just all get along? Big was a straight hardcore artist. And DJ Mr. C kind of alluded to the struggle behind the scenes with that hardcore image and what it would take to be successful. Biggie was definitely on his way. All that Puff promised him was happening. What we didn't know, though, at that time was how hard it was for Big to stop hustling. And Puff kept trying to keep him on the right path. There was a scene in Notorious where Puff pleaded with Big to stay off the streets. Puff signed him to Bad Boy through Uptown and things looked good. And it was in 1993, actually before that Young Gun panel that I was telling you about just kind of happened right before that. Andre had enough of the young, brash, arrogant Puff and fired him. Big was dropped as well from Uptown Records because some arrogant executive at MCA Records who didn't see the value of keeping Big because of the little controversy about dreams, Diddy needed to regroup, and again, he pleaded with Big to trust him and stay off the streets. Biggie did not and got caught with a gun charge along with his close friend D-Rock, who actually was the person who turned him onto the drug game. You can see all of this in the movie Notorious. It was in police custody where one of the most pivotal moments of Biggie's a career occurred. The gun was Biggie's. He's the one that tossed it. And because of his previous convictions and charges, he was facing five to seven years, which would have probably ended his pursuit of a rap career. And the artist we all know as a notorious B.I.G. probably wouldn't have happened. The police gave Big and D an ultimatum. One of them was going down for the gun. D-Rock, realizing the life-changing potential of Big, took the charge. Big went on a straight and narrow after that moment, and D-Rock was a G for life. Also during that time, Big was under tremendous pressure as his mother battled breast cancer. Diddy kept his promise to get a new deal, and he put his roster together of Craig Mack and the notorious B.I.G. and went to legendary label head Clive Davis, and they got a label deal through Arista, and Bad Boy was in business. By the way, Clive Davis historically always took chances on black artists, black executives, black producers. He was the one who gave Gamble and Huff their deal back in the day for the Sound of Philadelphia Records. He was the one that signed Earth, Wind & Fire. He, meaning Clive Davis, had an eye for talent and would never let talent go by him. So the bad boy deal was on. First out the gate was Craig Mack with a song called Flavor in Your Ear, which was an instant hit. Biggie released Juicy as his first single with the primo produced Unbelievable on the B-side with the illest sample of R. Kelly's Your Body's Calling. That summer, R. Kelly had put out his second album, 12 Play, and it was a monster song. So this sample was right on time. Juicy was Biggie's life story in a nutshell with the melodic m 2 Me sample. It was a great introduction song, and the video came out later that summer. They filmed the video in the Hamptons in a mansion, and visuals helped propel the song. 
His mother, Valetta Wallace, talking about Juicy. We were in the Hamptons mm-hmm. listening to the song. I was really listening to it. Right. And I heard the words on it. Mm-hmm. I guess that's when he said he was, uh, he gave me a mink and um, I had my, my car. Right. And I said to him, as a matter of fact, there was a part in the in the music that I never understood. Right. And I asked him, I thought he was saying that my hallway was pissy. Mm-hmm. And I yelled and screamed at <laughs> him. And his friend Damien said, Ma, he's talking about a drink. He's saying halazé. <laughs> I didn't even know what halazé was. But when I listened to that and listened to the story he was telling and how he really put that story together, mm-hmm. I said, darn, he's a really talented young man. In the movie Notorious, Big and his boys thought Juicy was too soft of an approach because Big was a hardcore rapper. Famously in the scene, you could see his boys laughing as Puff played the m 2 song Juicy Fruit. But Puff, the master strategist and businessman, explained radio and how he needed to deliver a song that got airplay. He told Big that he could be hard on the B-side, but he needed that radio airplay. So Juicy Unbelievable started to build in the summer of 1994. This is my first formal interview with Biggie. It was July 23rd, 1994, two months before the release of Ready to Die. I didn't have to wait until the album came out because Puff gave all the DJs an early advance of the album months in advance. So I was very familiar with it. And you'll hear in the interview, I'm so comfortable. I'm talking about the album, but the people didn't hear the album yet. We discussed Juicy, Unbelievable, his compromise on R&B sounding songs, the R. Kelly sample. This was so early in his career. The Juicy video wasn't even out yet, but the song was building on mix shows around the country. Got a shout out to Puff's man and a good friend of mine, Harv Pierre. He has worked with Puff from the beginning, and he was the one that set this interview up. You'll notice I had to correct myself when calling him Biggie Smalls because he had to change his name to the Notorious B.I.G. And I'll explain why. But here is my first interview. But in the studio, it's my man, the Notorious Big. That's right. The real deal, Biggie Smalls. No question. What's up, man? Welcome. That's right. Because there's some some corny uh, guy going around saying he's Biggie Smalls. And we'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, welcome to Philadelphia. What's going on? The man, Biggie Smalls. I've heard so much about you. And you've been a... been around for a couple years yeah. down with Puff Daddy and you're the first artist to come out on this brand new label well you and Craig Mack no doubt and uh first of all last summer you had to join on the uh soundtrack with Who's the Man yeah. Party and Bull and now you're coming with your brand new album which is called what? Ready to Die okay now tell everybody a little bit about where you coming from cause I listened to the beginning of your album and you kind of uh-huh. chronicle hip hop in the beginning of your album uh-huh. and your life and how you came to to what is, you know what's going on now so tell everybody what happened or what's going it's just, on it's just basically a life story you know what I'm saying just, I just laid everything that I experienced or witnessed you know what I'm saying and my days on the streets and just laid it on some on some wax you know okay just keeping it 100% real you know okay so so, um, you've been down with this hip hop thing for, for a long time because you had on there, you had on, uh, I guess it was Rapper's Delight in the background or something like oh, that. Yeah, yeah. And, and you've, been, you've been dealing with this for a long time. I mean, yeah, you know, listening to it mm-hmm. definitely all my life. So, how'd you hook up with Puff Daddy and, and you know, get down like that? Um, my boy tried to get me on this um, Source, Source Magazine album, mm-hmm. and um, Puff bumped into the guy that was organizing that and told me he was looking for a hardcore artist and mm-hmm. just put me on, and it was just on from there. Oh, okay. Now, how long ago, how many years ago was this? That was like two years ago. And you did your first song with Mary J. Blige, right? Yeah. You were rapping on her, on yeah, her joint? the Real Love Remake. Okay. All right, so now this album that's about to come out, um, what 
I've probably I've already heard already uh-huh. heard it. We're gonna jump into your first single off your album, yeah, which is yeah. Juicy. Which make sure you and play the B side too. Yeah, oh well we're gonna get to Unbelievable yeah. too in a minute. Cause yeah. that's, my man took the straight R. Kelly sample, but like I said, we'll get to that. Let's talk about Juicy. First yeah. of all, the cut that you sampled, that's one of my all-time favorite cuts uh-huh. right there, Juicy Fruit. So okay. yeah, that's the fat joint by M. Toomey. What's Juicy all about? Because you make statements in the in a record about your life. So. Yeah, that's the rags the riches joint, you know, how it was all bad, but now it's all good. Okay. Now, let's talk about Unbelievable, which is the B-side to, to uh, Juicy. And what's Unbelievable all about? It just was, you know, we were traveling crazy, you know what I'm saying? And we was having problems with dropping Juicy as the first single, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Because it was just so radio, and I didn't really want to, you know, right. hit like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we compromised, and they told me I could do a new joint, right. B-side. You no, know, it's not going to be on the album, just mm-hmm. a raw, uncut joint. It's told me it's to do my thing, so mm-hmm. I was hyped, and I got a dope producer, my man Primo. Right. Gangstar. Right. Come here. He did went up in there, got the blunts and the beer, just did our thing. And I'm, I like to join a lot. A lot of a lot of people like it. That's going to do it for part one of the Notorious B.I.G. on the Backstory Podcast. Coming up on part two. I mean, you all know Notorious B.I.G., Biggie Small, mm-hmm. Big Papa. I knew Christopher, the warm, loving, generous son who calls me Mommy, mm-hmm. who calls me mom, mm-hmm. who calls me mother dearest when he's upset with me. Right. <laughs> because I'm sure you know the story of mother de- mommy right. dearest or mother right. dearest. Mm-hmm. He calls me mom dukes. And when he's very upset and wants to really teed me off, he calls me ma. Y'all been waiting for this all night. I got the boys. Biggie Smalls and Craig Mack. More of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. 